Start jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. You should be able to hear the magnetic resonance from This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening. Whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time as we delve into the worlds of science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. I'm your host, Susan Fox. No, I'm not. I'm your host, Gene Turnbow. Susan Fox is taking a breather this week. And with us is Reed Schusterman the writer and director of a new horror film called Bloodborne. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. So, um, this is quite a leap from your original, the, the original piece that we uh, wrote about, I think it was, gosh, five years ago now. Something you like did, that, yeah. <laughs> you did Goblin Queen, which was charming, absolutely <laughs> charming. And now you've you've delved into this this <laughs> body horror, <laughs> you know, it was so imaginative, and no one has ever done that uh, that particular trope, the inverted rite of passage story uh, that you did in uh, Goblin Queen. This one, this one is dark. Oh my gosh, is it dark? Yeah, it, it's it was a real big. Big, big shift. Uh, I, I wanted to make a feature length version of that short, uh, which is still, you know, a story that is very dear to my heart, but it came in a little too expensive. Uh, and by little, I mean about 18, 19 times over the budget we had, something in that range. Yeah, it sounds um, like it would have been something like a $12 million show at minimum. Yeah, easily something much bigger than we had access to. So it was really a question of what kind of story can we tell in a way that is we can tell in a way that's going to be up to our standards. And that was a that was a long process working with Cindy Rice, my producer, on, you know, sort of what story and what movie we were going to try and tell. And we sort of were circling when you're making movies on a really low budget, you're sort of locked into if you're not doing a mumblecore drama, which I f hate, uh, more power to you if you like those, but I, they don't do it for me. So if you're doing real low budget genre filmmaking, it's pretty much got to be horror or horror adjacent if you're going to not just find a marketplace for it, though that's certainly part of it, but just be able to make it and sell it and like, like sell it to the audience that, you know, whatever effects or sci-fi or fantasy stuff is, you know, realistic enough and you're not making some B movie with puppets jumping out of the shadows. So then it was just a process of figuring out, you know, what's scary and what's going to 
affect people emotionally. And my wife and I were talking about having a kid. It was something we'd been, you know, discussing for a few years and we were Uh getting serious about it. And that scared me. So this is the movie that resulted. (laughs) That's yeah, that's funny. The uh, the thing about childbirth for women that's scary is, oh, my God, what if it's stillborn? You know, Mm -hmm. or what if something goes wrong for the men? What's scary is oh my God, I'm having a baby. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> it's completely upside down. Uh, and, and and my my wonderful wife uh, told me about two weeks before this movie was greenlit that we were going to have a baby. So it was a fun little parallel project oh, to, wow. the, to the real life journey that we went on. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, ours turned out uh, a lot better. But a lot better than it does in the movie. So no but, claw marks on her stomach or anything like that. No, <laughs> not, not not beforehand. But that little girl's got some sharp nails oh, on the outside now. You claw uh, little mittens, mittens. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, very important. <laughs> so it, oh my it's, god, they're like little razor blades. Oh yeah. Just the sharpest little thing and just, you know, you think, oh, they're being so gentle and then they just grab you and their tiny little hands. You can't that like I, I'm not that strong, but their tiny little hands just don't let go. <laughs> yeah, you can actually uh, uh, you can actually have the baby grip onto a bar and then lift the bar and the baby will I, come up with them. Yep. They they're, they're yeah. re- have a really strong grip. You know, yeah. we are we are all primates after all. And exactly. the, the gripping instinct is a, is very strong in babies. Mm-hmm. Oh man. You know, yeah. they've got f- f- you'd think they'd have forearms like Popeye <laughs> to have a grip like that. It, it constantly surprised me how somebody who, you know, couldn't hold her head up could grab my finger and not let go and then, you know, cut my finger with her tiny little razor nails. Oh, my son, uh, when he was born, he uh, he was holding his head up within the first 15 minutes. So it's yeah, it's pretty, pretty there's a lot of yeah. difference. And he was big. Oh, he yeah. was big. And, and this this uh, very, very surprising. You know, I didn't expect him to be a big muscular baby. Yeah. <laughs> but he was. And, and that's, you know, that kind of goes back to uh, the theme of your your show, your movie, which is that uh, what comes out is not at all what was expected. You no, know, and what... I think that's something that even, you know, even before we had the kid, the movie was written, you know, before we were expecting. But that was something that when I was just talking to people about the experience I was thinking of going on, everybody told me that you have no idea what's going to come out and you don't know who they're going to be or what kind of person they're going to turn into. And for a control freak like me, that scared the crap out of me, just absolutely mm-hmm. terrified me, let alone just the practicalities of going from, you know, happily married with no kids and being able to do whatever we want to having a kid, which really does change your day to day existence. And that and, and you're, you're not in control of yourself anymore when you have mm-hmm. a little person that you're taking care of. And, you know, I think it was sort of a fairly, fairly common fear I had that I was going to lose control of my life. And that was, they say, write what you know. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, well, I, I guess that's, that was my version of it. Well, that that's the great thing about it. You know, you hear that phrase a lot, write what you know. Uh, but people don't realize that you can take a little seed of something exactly. that that's, 
that's like one or two percent of who you are and then write about that and turn that into a full-blown uh, production it, of something exactly it's not about you know writing myself and my life into the movie mm -hmm. it's about finding whatever that emotional germ is that i feel strongly enough that i can take that and throw a bunch of magic and demons and weird chanting on top of it and craft a story that is patently ridiculous but still mm -hmm. has that emotional truth to oh, it. Oh yeah. Well the 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 horror of it uh is of course that the whole thing gets more and more involved and there it gets weirder and weirder <laughs> and uh at a certain point uh the woman reaches the point of no return. Mm-hmm. You know and, and that that was something that we thought about a lot was how do we craft her journey in a way that doesn't feel dismissive because she is somebody who goes on a very big arc in the movie and uh, I think I think we certainly struggled early on making it believable and not something where it didn't make sense so it was really I, I was fortunate making this movie to have. A, a whole lot of women behind the scenes and working with me and a number of them were who were mothers who were really able mm -hmm. to put their own experience into that part of the story and make her journey while it certainly is outlandish it's certainly grounded in emotions that i hope women can relate to because I didn't want it to just be my own fears it was certainly there there's certainly a lot of stuff my wife was afraid of that made it into the movie well that's exactly uh i mean that to me it showed that you were setting this up and trying to ground this very very well in uh, the beginning of the film where there's that focus group for the mm -hmm. for the women who have gone through uh miscarriages uh i actually thought that that scene might have been trimmed a bit because it i think the pacing mm -hmm. suffered there Mm -hmm. You know, but it's hard to tell that when you're in the middle of editing it, you know, and you don't, it's all in your head and you understand where it's all going, but the viewer doesn't when they first encounter it. So, uh, yeah, it just, it, it seemed a bit long, but it, later on as the film, uh, un, as the story unfolded, I understood why, uh, I understood why that scene was necessary. I think it was important to really ground the characters in a situation that would justify why they're willing to put up with the lengths that this woman who comes – this witch doctor puts them through. She puts mm -hmm. them through a whole lot pretty early on. So you really have to dig into sort of the desperation and certainly that's something that we did a lot of research on and a lot of development on uh, – Rosie Moss, the actress, uh, spent a lot of time really digging into the emotions of that part of the story because that's sort of the desperation that they feel really drives all the giant leaps that they take throughout the movie. And, and, that's and just, it, it was just, imp it was important to really feel that. And we, we experimented with a number of different ways and sort of keeping it really grounded and really straightforward. We found work best. I loved the, I loved the chicken trick, <laughs> you know, at the beginning. The, yeah. yeah. Towards the beginning. I loved the chicken trick and I know it's just, you know, it's just a little bit of camera sleight of hand, but it mm -hmm. shows what, uh, 
that you can create compelling effects for really not very much. <laughs> I think, All you need is a I chicken. Think I, I think I used that same trick in Goblin Queen, where it's really it's you know the silent movie thing, the uh-huh. the the thing that I did when I was uh, making movies as a kid with my shoulder VHS recorder, where you record something, you stop the recording, you switch out something in frame, and you put it back in, or it. You take it out and it looks like something appears or disappears or goes from an egg to a hatched chicken in 10 seconds. And it's just such basic filmmaking. Oh, yeah. Well, it's you it's know. the it's the old George Melier trick. You know? Exactly. Exactly. Uh, it's really, I think that's sort of the, those are the kind of things that make low budget filmmaking possible is those sort of foundational camera tricks. And they're, they're so much more effective than people realize. And I know that even in the giant CG fests that come out, which I say that with love, I love all those movies, but even in those, there's a lot of these really basic camera tricks that people don't notice, but they really work on a visceral level. Oh yeah, it's uh, you know the 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 mantra is use CG only when there's no other choice. Exactly. And uh, but lately, I think I think modern films have. Whoops! Hello. Uh oh. Uh, darn darn it! Check check. There you go. I'm, I'm back. Yep, you're back. Okay. Ah, yeah. Sorry. I'm going to have to edit that bit out. No worries. Uh, the I, I just bumped a cable here. I just threw together <laughs> threw together the rig really fast because I realized I couldn't record uh, without the mixer. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, the there is so much CGI in uh, in modern cinema now, and uh, uh, in the early days, you'd have. You know, like Lawnmower Man or something like that. Or, right. No, oh, oh, Tron. Tron is a great example. Mm-hmm. Out of two hours, there's only about eight and a half minutes of actual computer animation. And the rest mm-hmm. is all cam- camera tricks and yep. compositing and this kind of thing. Uh, and in in Life of Pi, uh, which uh, was released, uh, geez, just about 10 years ago now. Was it that long? Oh my goodness! <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. It was just. It was no. Actually, it's uh, eight years ago. It was released. Um, wow, that's <laughs> that's a long time. Yeah, eight years ago, uh, they had something like one thousand four hundred and fifty individual CGI shots. Almost every shot in that film was CGI in some way. You know, everything was fake. The tiger mm-hmm. was fake. The boat was fake. The water was fake. The only thing that was real was the boy, and some of the time he was fake. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, yeah, I, I know this because I worked on the film. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I was a, a trainer at Rhythm and Hughes Studios, and those were my animators. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> who who did the actual animation? The the uh, the, the guys that I taught. Yeah, that that was a. Sad situation the way that went down. Yeah. Oh, you're you're aware of it. Oh yeah. Yeah. That that went sideways really yeah. fast. Uh, I, I've told the story on the Event Horizon many times before, but uh, uh, yeah, they they gave us uh, sixteen hours notice that we were all laid off, and they're supposed to, and they're supposed to give us sixty days notice if they're approaching Oof. bankruptcy. 
So yeah. they were all on stage uh, in London getting their BAFTA awards. <laughs> and at the same time, their phones were going, bing, 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 you're fired, you're fired, you're fired. <laughs> oh, that was, a, that was a mess. Yeah, they got fired. They, they, they got let go by, uh, by a bulk email. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and, uh, anyway. Uh, yeah. But getting back to the point, um, you can do so much with suggestion and good yes. writing uh, and being clever about how you shoot things and create a world that goes far beyond the edges of the screen. Yeah. And, and I think that that's something that certainly Goblin Queen does even more of uh, mm -hmm. that, that, you know, implies the entirety of a Lord of the Rings style story while staying within a, a little house for 11 minutes. But that that I think is it's it's part of the fun of genre storytelling is finding ways to world build. And when you're doing it in a when you're when you're world building in a novel, you can really you can spend pages and pages talking about stuff. But when you're world building on screen, you have to do that through really small pieces and moments and whatever you can manage to afford that looks right. good and isn't going to take 18 days to shoot. And you just have these little moments where one thing has to tell an entirety, an entire, you know, secret foundations worth of backstory. Uh -huh. And that's a really fun piece of, I don't know, it's almost like math. Yeah, uh, it, it almost just, is. I mean, you can't, because uh, in a motion picture, you don't get a narrator, so you can't no. just present blocks of exposition. Yeah, so it's fun to just see, like, well, if she says these three words and mentions that the foundation has an app, well, that says a lot about what's going on with this foundation. It just opens up this whole realm that we don't have to get into, but we know is there and makes the world feel more, more fully constructed more complete right because if there's an app then it means that they have they're they're connected to the real world in dozens of different ways to make that exactly. possible and it implies all sorts of structure that you don't have to talk about <laughs> exactly exactly it, but it still feels real because of that mm -hmm. so uh how long did it take to shoot all of this uh it was a 15-day main shoot with a day of pickups a couple weeks later that's really, yeah. Just one day of pickups. That's really good. One, wow. one day of pickups. I we we would have loved a little more, but we didn't have the money or the time, mm -hmm. and the location had been given away long ago. But uh, that's low budget filmmaking. Is yeah. you get what you get, and you just have to make it work. And if you have to get fifty shots in one day of pickups, you find a way to get fifty shots in one day. Yeah. Oh, that's cranking. Wow. I, what was your shooting ratio? Do you remember? Uh, I do not remember. I know we were shooting 12-hour days and we were probably like actively rolling like, – like actively shooting scenes for six hours of those days so, a minimum every day. So, so like you were, th there was a lot of stuff that we just tore through. So like you were shooting like six to eight pages a day? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, jeez. That is – that's a hellish pace. That is hellish. It was – very difficult and certainly one of the things, you know, if I could go back and do everything again, I would, I would try fight for as much more time as I could get. But well, you know, that, that all, just, that's, that all comes out to the making. location, you know, yes. how much, how much of the location time can you afford? And if you can only afford 15 days, well, 
Yep. It's all, it's all got to go in. Whatever, it's all got to fit in the box, doing. no matter I, how I think, you do it. Uh, Every day it was, how much of this scene do we really need? Can we shorten this scene by 50%? Can we cut this piece? Can we cut that piece? And I think we did a really, uh, a pretty good job of picking what, what to save and what to keep. There's a couple of things we ended up, we shot that ended up not making the film, which Uh it it was very disappointing, but it was a great learning experience about what you need and don't need. And just because something's cool on the page doesn't mean that when you're in the edit bay, it's going to be relevant or useful. Uh, so that, that just, that part of movie making is it's difficult, but it's so much fun for me. Well, it felt really tight. It felt, it felt like if you, if you, if you clipped anything out, you'd destroy the story. And that's exactly the sweet spot where you want to be. Yeah. And uh, my producer, Cindy, uh, she gets the credit for that. I think half of the post-production process of this movie was me taking her an edit of a scene or a sequence to her and her being like, well, that's okay, but what if we cut this and cut that and cut that? And then I would get annoyed and go stew for anywhere from (laughs) two to 24 hours. And then Uh I would look at it again and realize how right Cindy was. And (laughs) that's the thing. She's Cindy Rice has had so much experience uh, doing this stuff. And she's uh, I've known her for years. Uh, uh, I haven't talked to her in a long time. I should, she took me to lunch once. uh, uh, I think, God, it's gotta be six years ago now. No, no longer than that. I think I was at, uh, still at Rhythm and Hughes. So it had to have been like 10 years ago. Oh my God. <laughs> I owe that woman lunch. Uh, I, I'm sure she'd be happy to see you. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, she she is really, really good at this. And uh, uh, the longer she's in it, the better she gets. And it just, it was such a valuable thing to me to have somebody there with so much experience. I mean, you know, this is my first feature. So... There's a lot of, you know, jumping on a train that's moving full speed and figuring out how to drive it while you're sure while you're yeah, going, yeah. and having somebody there with that kind of patience and knowledge and ability to just make sure everything stayed on track. We we could have easily blown the budget, easily blown the schedule, and not gotten what we needed. And mm-hmm. Having somebody with that kind of experience is the most important thing that I did on this movie. Uh, She's having somebody like that is a must for anybody making their first movie. I don't know how people do it where everybody goes in blind and it's a first time director and producer. And I know people do that and it turns out, you know, anywhere from pretty good to great sometimes. But uh, having somebody who can really tell you like, you know, I know this is your movie, but that's wrong. And this, (laughs) no matter how much you like this scene, it will not, it will not fit in the flow. And it will, all it will do is screw up your pacing. There was one, nothing. there There was only one like full scene that I insisted we shoot over Cindy's objections and we got in the edit bay and within about five minutes of being in the edit bay, my editor turned to me and said, you know, this scene really is just a waste. We should cut it. And, uh, that, that you, you would yeah. think I would have learned my lesson for the rest of post-production from that one interaction, but it still was a process of me yep. realizing that, you know, well, ki- uh, what's, what's the phrase? Kill your babies. 
Yeah. I guess that, Kill your I guess children. That's ap- appropriate for this one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Especially. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That that thing with the long fingernails in the bathtub getting bludgeoned to death. That was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was. That that that, was, uh, that prop is actually now part of the Halloween decorations of one of our other producers, da- producers Dana Guerin. She bought it a little pacifier and a bat costume, and it is both cute and absolutely horrifying in a really fantastic way. Oh, so it didn't get destroyed during the? Uh... No, it no, it, it was one of these. Uh, Real dolls that, you know, or not real dolls, that's the adult version, but uh-huh. these little fake babies that there's a whole community of people that buy these fake babies and they have them and dress them up and take care of them as if they were real and they are very realistic and uh, our makeup makeup artist did a great job adding to what came with it. But the, the, it, it was – I don't want to judge anybody for what makes them happy or what works for them. So I won't say – quite how I felt holding that, but it is a lump, uh, about an eight pound lump of rubber that just sits there and looks very realistic like a baby. Uh, silicone. <laughs> it must be, must be cast in silicone. Something like that. I believe yeah, so. Yeah. yeah. I just most, uh, uh, for the listeners, you know, the age of latex is gone. All of the appliances nowadays are mm-hmm. silicone. Yeah, you know, and and a, a material called smooth on, uh, which is a, mm-hmm. a, you know, it's a whole line of silicone casting materials, and it gives you uh, uh, translucent skin, which was impossible in the days of rubber. I mean, you could always tell when somebody was wearing yep. a rubber appliance because they had pancake makeup, and it always looked com- totally opaque, and you could always yeah. tell. That translucency was something that we talked a lot about certain when we were getting ready to shoot that scene was can we make this look horrifying and believable or is it going to look like a a Barbie doll in a bathtub and uh, I think our makeup artist and also our colorist who did some work touching that up really did a great job making that feel like real skin yeah well one one way that uh, one way to sell that stuff is uh, hold it up and and let some light glow through the ears Mm-hmm. You know, because yeah, sheet rubber, you know, foam rubber don't don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and in fact, subsurface scattering is one of the key issues for making skin look real in CGI as well. I believe it. Yeah, there's whole, there's whole classes of uh, of uh, equations that are mm-hmm. designed to do that, including um, uh, super sampling, mm-hmm. where where you take. Uh, uh, you figure out what the translucency should be for any given point in the volume, and then you, uh, 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 I was going to say amortize, but that's not, not, not the right word. You, you average between the, the points and mm-hmm. get, get sliding values based on that, and you only have to compute the, the density matrix of a very, very sparse matrix of densities in order to get that effect. So it's mm-hmm. a lot faster to render than it used to be. Anyway, I'm sort of wandering off topic here. <laughs> Another really important uh, aspect of doing horror films, and we just touched on it a little bit with the the light coming from behind the ears, is the lighting your mm-hmm. lighting director was a genius. Yeah, uh, Laura Jansen was just 
uh, uh, just a miracle worker because we were shoot first of all shooting in a house that was probably fourteen hundred square feet maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was just cramming lights in and how do we make this one light do three different things and how do we tell a story with the light while still you know making our days. Mm-hmm. And, and setting up just, the rig so that so that you don't get any, any of that stuff on camera, you know. Yeah, and though, in a tight, I will. I a will tight say space were, like that—that's a problem. <laughs> there, there were a few shots, a few more shots than I would have liked that had to go through some cleanup because of a hanging wire or some foil in the corner. Uh, but that's just the price of you know that that's what you have to do when you're making really low budget movies and we were fortunate that we were able to budget for some shots where we knew the light would just have to be in and paint it out later i'm uh, being followed by a boom shadow boom <laughs> shadow boom shadow <laughs> uh, <laughs> so yeah just just having uh, somebody like laura who just uh-huh. really wanted to tell a story and had not had done some horror but had not done horror in a house for a full feature length and uh-huh. just really she got to play with all the lights and her whole crew was just fantastic and the way they told the story and it's not it's it's not a it's not bright like midsummer is midsomar i don't Mm -hmm. know how you pronounce that movie it's not colorful in that way but it's not like a lot of horror movies right now are all blue and all dark and all really muddy colors and that's not what we wanted for this we wanted something a little more homey and a little Mm -hmm. more inviting at first because that's what kids are scary but they're bright and loud colors so laura did a really great job of finding a way to make the light scary but not all dark and not all gray and not all blue it's she she did amazing work i mean uh it's very easy to fall back on the trope of you know uh black gray uh and and uh some muted blues and uh you know and throw some water on the grounds for for ground reflections and (laughs) And and away you go. It's very easy to fall into that because that's a trope. And it's effective. I mean, I don't want to, you know, discount the reason it's a trope because people people do that because it works. Uh, I think for me, I'm not somebody who I, 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 I like horror movies. I, I There are many that I love, but I'm not a horror aficionado the way some people, you know, that's all they watch. They'll watch any horror movie from, you know, the Oscar winners down to, you know, Birdemic or something. Um, <laughs> My son showed me Birdemic. That was the absolute, <laughs> absolute worst thing I have ever seen in my life. It is. I, I, I don't really have the words to describe that movie. There but are none. It's so it, bad. Every movie. Somebody once told me every movie is a miracle, but some miracles are a lot more miraculous than other things. (laughs) Back in the uh, back in the 80s, when I was still doing practical effects, I uh, had managed to hook up with a company that needed some. uh, They were they were shooting low budget horror stuff and they were called Turkey Films. (laughs) (laughs) Knowing full well what they were doing was trash. Uh, And their motto was. If it's one of ours, it's a turkey. <laughs> That's fantastic. And they later changed their name to Miracle Films. <laughs> 
if it's a good film, it's a miracle. <laughs> the guy had a real sense of humor. I mean, go f- if if you can make a living doing that, oh, more yeah. power to you. Yeah, well, uh, you know, getting back to the lighting thing, uh, uh, they had this, uh, you know, they tended to do the Catholic high school girls in trouble kind of films. <laughs> yep. And uh, uh, they wanted me to do some effects on... Um, uh, in a uh, dungeon scene, but they lit the dungeon like it was a cafeteria. <laughs> and I said, I can't work in this. And I said, they said, what do you mean? And I said, you'd light it like a cafeteria. They're going to see all the seams, even if you're shooting 16 millimeter. Mm-hmm. You can't light it like this. <laughs> <laughs> I, that's something that digital has really allowed for a lot more leeway too, because you can... Do you think? You, you can shoot in... Uh, with less less darkness and with some of the post effects, you can smooth out some of the scenes if you're getting too close on them. Oh yeah, but I know that to, there to were certainly point. some effects that we smoothed out in post that uh-huh. didn't quite look right on camera and would have looked okay in a darker shot. And it's because we had access to color correction and some CGI cleanup, not heavy CGI effects, but some cleanup that really allowed those practical effects to work within the lighting scheme. Oh, like, like, uh, the new, uh, there's some new technology, uh, powered by art NVIDIA RTX, uh, graphics cards. And if you go into, um, uh, DaVinci Resolve, did you use that to edit with? I, I did. We, I think we were in Adobe mostly, but I don't know oh, what Adobe the Premier? CG yeah. stuff was anyway, done. Anyway, in, in uh, DaVinci Resolve, it's got uh, an auto rotoscope feature. Oh wow! Yeah, you just you just paint a couple <laughs> of uh, paint a couple of uh, swaths of paint over a character <laughs> oh, man. over a I character, didn't... and you don't even have to you don't even have to hit the the outlines. It figures out the outlines based on what you painted and, and creates a rotoscope mat for you, a roto mat. And it does it uh, almost in real time. If I if I could have back all the time that I wasted, not wasted, but spent doing just basic, basic entry level rotoscoping. That's amazing. Yeah, it, it is really something. And uh, uh, I mean, you should. If you can get I'm your gonna, hands, if you can yeah. get, it needs an RTX graphics card to work. But fortunately, fortunately, it only needs the most basic of uh, RTX graphics cards. Well, and, I, and, I actually have one of those. Yeah, so. Oh, okay. You have one. So you're yes. set to go. So give that a try. Look that up. Yeah, that uh, sounds auto, fantastic. Auto rot- yeah, auto rotoscoping, you know, and, it, and I think yeah. it can do things like uh, uh, somebody's walking in the foreground you can actually mark them and it will take them out <laughs> of That's... the of the scene like if you're trying to shoot a blank if you're trying to shoot a blank plate yeah. you know or or uh, uh 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 you're trying to shoot a clean plate of the background because you're doing mm-hmm. effects work and some some and it happens to be outside and the car is going yeah. by or somebody's in there or walking across mm-hmm. you can actually mark them and it will take them out and it's seamless. I think that kind of stuff is where CGI really shines. Like, not so much the big explosions, which always look better when uh-huh. there's a practical explosion at the heart of it, even if you enhance it, or the characters that 
you know, I love Marvel movies, but man, those, they just, they're cartoons on screen. Yeah. Uh, they, they, but, but those little practical things that just right. make, make your life easier and make it, you know, you can get that clean plate without waiting 20 minutes. You can oh, right, exactly. get that shot. And if something moves in the, in the background, you can just fix it later and you don't have to redo it because somebody bumped into the lamp. Yeah, exactly. I mean, at at this point, you know, we we joke. Oh, they should put an easy make it great button in the <laughs> software, and now we have one. I, I <laughs> it's, just it's read awesome. an article. I read an article recently. I don't know if you remember the jokes about CSI, where you know they would take the blurriest photo in the world and then say, "Oh yes, enhance. oh yes, yes." Uh, and there, there was recently news that they can, they can do that now. Magnify and enhance. As a matter of fact, that technology is now built into Photoshop. That's insane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it, and it it also uses the RTX technology. But uh, yeah, there is uh, there is a scale with um, um, I can't remember what it's called, but there's a special feature in the image scaler uh, that mm -hmm. that does that. It actually upreses the photo <laughs> and adds in missing detail. It's the most insane thing I've seen in a long time. It's incredible, and the fact that that's <laughs> available on a consumer level and not just available but functional, yeah, is just yeah, it's it mind blowing. Right. The the stuff that they can do now, um, like face tracking and yep. uh, yeah, you can do there's for Blender uh, I, and to the audience, I apologize. We're sort of wonking out here, <laughs> uh, but uh, there is a, a camera face tracker app that you can or plug in that you can get for Blender that will animate your character's face based on what it sees you doing uh, on your web camera. And, it's, <laughs> and it can do, I believe it can do that in real time as well. It's just, uh, and there is, uh, I've seen another app where um, uh, you need to do full body tracking. Well, you can now mm -hmm. do that with a single webcam as well. And it, it, it's, uh, it takes some processing time and it's done in the cloud, but it works. The thing, something that really, just to bring it back around to sort of filmmaking or whatever, not that we're not talking about it, but just something that really excites me is, you know, 15, 20 years ago, there was this at home digital revolution or whatever with movies where, you know, people could put some CGI and stuff in their movies and could start, you know, they can't make a Marvel movie, but they can do some stuff that is that used to take, you know, rooms full of computers. About 15, 20 years ago, that started becoming a lot more accessible. Now we're getting to the point where, you know, somebody can make a really convincing alien at home with their iPhone on a camera and, and, and some software. People, people are going to be able to make some really amazing stuff with this technology and that that's people are going to think was were studio movies but are just some 15 year old with a laptop <laughs> oh yeah yeah that's um sky captain uh, oh that, yeah that was that that sort of broke it open yep that was that was uh like one guy working in his basement for like four years <laughs> and he made a feature and it was all cgi and then he went and and got uh, got a few names, and they shot uh, green screen 
for everything. And I think the most yeah. elaborate set they had was a green screen curtain with a green green screen draped over a table and a book on it. <laughs> and that was that's all they had. Yeah. And it was fan, you know, it wasn't a it wasn't an exceptional uh uh movie in terms of story, but it was certainly watchable and it it showed very watchable and really impressive technically. Yeah. Really, really impressive. And and also not just impressive, but a singular vision. I mean, the the whole aesthetic of that movie is very unique. And there's not it's not like, you know, generic steampunk or I I don't know exactly if that's it's not quite steampunk, but it's I think the term is diesel punk. Okay, diesel punk. I've never heard that, but it, it just it feels so singular and that kind of stuff just extrapolated to you know, the movies you make when you're a teenager and you're, you know, just fooling around with your phone or whatever, uh, it's 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 going to be incredible. And the stuff we're going to see in the next few years is going to be really exciting. So where does uh, Bloodborne get distributed? How do, you, how do you make money with a film like this? Well, that's always the question. <laughs> uh, we are – the movie's out now. We are available on Amazon Prime and – Tubi and somewhere on Roku uh, and just all your general digital platforms. Um, but we we finished the movie. We found a distribution company, and then it's just it, it's the same it's the same thing that independent movies have gone through for forty years or fifty years, where you find a distribution company, they see who they can sell it to, and you wait for the money to come in. And these days. All the money is in coming from streaming and apparently ad supported streaming like Tubi, which I don't uh-huh. know if you've heard of that. It's yeah, a, I have the app on my phone. Yeah, it, yeah. it's a really cool, cool app because you don't need to sign up. You just turn it on. You watch a commercial, which, you know, I know mm-hmm. people don't like, but you watch something. You don't have to sign up and then it's everything's just available to you. And, and the funny, so the funny that thing is kind that, of thing is where a lot of uh, uh-huh. a lot of the revenue comes from the purview ad supported stuff. That's really funny because we're kind of running full circle here. I mean, yes. <laughs> we, we, we all went to, we all went to cable because we could watch it without ads and now they put ads <laughs> on cable. <laughs> and so well, we went to it, other, we went to paid streaming services because we didn't want to be bundled with cable and a bunch <laughs> of channels we didn't watch. Uh, and, and now uh, people are starting to realize, Hey, I've got to subscribe to like five different, five or six <laughs> different surfaces to find all the stuff I want. You know, that sucks. And now we're back into to streaming services like Crackle and Tubi and, and uh, um, you know, um, Retro TV and places like Retro TV just lets you watch television on your phone. I think with I think commercials, you know, I, I think something I've missed and that that a lot of these things are starting to fill now is just the passive TV watching, you know, just putting something on uh, on this while you're cooking or whatever and not uh-huh. having to decide like, oh, I'm going to watch this show or that show. You just turn the TV on, you find something that's good enough and you put it on in the background. And I think that's really valuable uh, to a lot of people, certainly to me. And I think a lot of these services are trying to the the newer ones and these ad supported ones are sort of filling that gap that people have been missing for a few years. 
What was the budget for the show, if you don't mind my asking? Uh, it was mid six figures, I believe. I don't know the exact number off the wow. top of my head. That's that's cheap. Yeah, but it, it was very, very cheap. Uh, it's just, and, and it had to be that it had to be held that way because you know yep. distribution on a horror film. Horror films traditionally are easy to sell, but they don't make that money individual that much money no. individually. No, every now and then, you know, somebody gets lucky and has, you know, a paranormal activity or whatever. But generally, they make money, but not a lot of money. So the math for these low budget horror movies is how little can you make it for and how many people can you convince to watch it? And especially now in in when a lot of the revenue is really just a, a per view income, it's it's not like, you know, years ago you would sell to Showtime and sell the airplanes or whatever mm-hmm. and you would get this lump sum and that's not really the case anymore. Yeah, it used to be that you'd make a uh, uh, you'd make a low budget horror movie and then you'd send it to the distributor and the distributor would sell it to all the drive-ins in in uh, <laughs> the southern part of the, you know, southern in the yeah. s- southern part of the country where they would go people would go to anything. People would go yep. to the opening of a door. <laughs> uh, uh, just to have something to do, uh, you know, yeah. and they're, they're makeout movies. You don't go to yep. watch the movie. You go to wa- make out with your girl in the, in the drive-in, except that the drive-ins are now all gone. That was, yep. you know, that was like what, what the business was like 40 years ago. And there's none of that sort of, well, there's so much content out there and it's also easy to access that, that sort of, well, I don't really want to watch this, but whatever isn't that's not really there anymore people don't do that uh so that that whole part of the market sort of splintered and disintegrated and so that's why you really have to find a niche and live in that when you're making these kind of movies and horror is a, a big niche but you have to find smaller niches within that and find sort of where where you land and how mm-hmm. to access those people who want to watch those movies. Well, and you have to make enough money so that you can do the next one and you have to, that's the and, whole goal. And you have to churn like mad in order to make yep. a living at it. Yep. You know, so that's lots and lots of low budget horror movies. <laughs> yeah. A whole lot. It, it's a very crowded field out there. I think something that I'm really proud of with Bloodborne is it doesn't quite feel exactly like all your other low budget horror movies. It's not a slasher. There aren't mm-hmm. like a lot of jump scares. I think there's maybe one or two in the whole movie. And, uh, it, it was really emotionally grounded in a way that a mm-hmm. lot of these low budget yeah. horror movies aren't. And, you know, no, no, no shade or anything. People, some of those movies are, I know I have friends who make them. They're a f- great time. They're a lot of fun, but that's just not what I care about. Uh, I, I really wanted to find the story that would, I, I wanted people to be moved a little bit emotionally. When I made Goblin Queen, uh, at one of our screenings, I made some, a couple of people cry. They started crying from that, that little short that I had made. And I don't think there's a bigger compliment you can get as a filmmaker than affecting somebody emotionally. And, uh, with COVID, I haven't actually been able to watch this with anybody except my wife and my parents, uh, in the same room as me, but I, I've gotten a couple of, we've gotten some reviews and some comments left that it has affected people a little bit on that level. And that, that's oh yeah, yeah. what it's, you're hoping for. It definitely, 
definitely has that emotional impact. And part of it is because uh, it's so well crafted that people Thank take you. it seriously. And that makes a yeah. huge difference. I, Ladies and the, the actors took it seriously, too, yeah. which yeah, is they did. important. Yeah. And, yeah. and that showed as well. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking to Reed Schusterman, the writer and director of the new horror film Bloodborne. Uh, thank you for uh, joining us on this episode 226, believe it or not, of the Event Horizon here on Sci-Fi.Radio. It's been a pleasure having you. Thanks so much. It was a lot of fun. You have been listening to episode 226 of Sci-Fi.Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for Saturday, September 11th, 2021. Our guest this evening has been Reed Schusterman, the writer and director of the new independent horror film Bloodborne. This episode will air again on September 12th, 2021 at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern tomorrow afternoon and two more times on the following Thursday and Saturday mornings at 4 a.m. Pacific, 7 a.m. Eastern. Once all of the airtimes have passed, you will find this episode and others on iTunes, Stitcher, and on our own website at sci-fi.radio as podcasts. Sci-Fi.Radio is listener-supported sci-fi geek culture radio, and the vast majority of our funding comes from listeners just like you. We are asking you to visit patreon.com slash sci-fi radio and pledge $5 a month to help keep the station on the air. Give the gift of geek music to your friends by helping support the world's only full-time sci-fi fandom radio station. That's patreon.com slash sci-fi radio. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The science officer was played by sci-fi illustrator Mark Schurmeister. The engineer was Christian B. McGuire. The navigator was Christine Cherry. And the captain was voiced by science fiction grandmaster Larry Niven. This program is copyright 2021 by Krypton Media Group Incorporated. The Event Horizon on sci-fi.radio. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi.